All right, one more time. Good morning, church. All right. Good job. Good to see you, as has been said, and uh, come together to worship. We continue in worship uh, by coming around God's Word. We'll be looking at that passage Cindy just read for us in a moment. There was this new uh, missionary recruit who went to Venezuela for the very first time. And he was struggling with the Spanish language, and he didn't understand a whole lot of what was going on around him. But he did go and visit a local church, but having arrived late, the church was already packed, and the only pew that was left was in the very front row. And so there he would be in front of everybody in the church, and he didn't know anything about Spanish, and so as to not make a fool of himself... Since he didn't speak a lick of Spanish, he decided to pick someone out from the crowd to imitate. He chose to follow the man sitting right next to him in the front row. So as they sang, the man clapped his hands, and so the missionary recruit clapped too. When the man stood up as the pastor prayed, the missionary recruit looked at him, and he also stood up. When the man sat down, he sat down. During the preaching, during the, preaching the recruit didn't understand a word. He just sat there and tried to look just like the man in the front row. The man nodded his head, and so he nodded his head too. Then he perceived the preacher was giving some announcements, and everyone in the room clapped, and he looked to see if the man was clapping. He was, and so the recruit clapped too. Then the preacher said some words that he didn't understand, but he saw the man next to him stand up, and so he stood up too. Suddenly, a hush fell over the entire congregation. A few people even gasped. He looked around. He saw that nobody else was standing. He sheepishly sat down. Well, after the service ended, the preacher was standing at the door and shaking hands and of those who were leaving. And this missionary recruit stretched out his hand to greet the preacher. And the preacher said in English, I take it you don't speak Spanish. The missionary recruit replied, no, I don't. Was it that obvious? Well, yes, said the preacher, I announced the Rodriguez family, the ones who were sitting next to you, had a newborn baby boy, and with a proud father, please stand up. (laughs) Yeah. Be careful whom you choose to imitate. What is it, though, about others in the Christian community that is worthy to emulate? And to turn it around to the other side of that coin, are we living in such a way that we would want others to imitate us? Not just on a Sunday morning, but as we go out through these doors. Former NBA star Charles Barkley, the round mound of rebound, as he was called, was famous for saying, I'm not a role model. I'm not a role model. In spite of the fact that young kids wanted to imitate him, he didn't want that responsibility. He ignored the fact that high visibility made it necessary for him to behave with at least an understanding that millions of people were watching him. Now, we don't have millions of people watching us, but we do have some very important people watching. Our families, our friends, our unsaved neighbors, our co-workers. Is our life worthy of being imitated? Well, that introduces us to our passage this morning in the first letter to the Thessalonians. And so I invite you, if you're not there, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
The passage that Cindy just read for us. We kicked off our study in this book last week after spending one Sunday prior to that looking at the story behind the letter in Acts 17. And as we're going to see as we go through this book of the Bible is that it is very uh, pastoral. And what I mean by that is we see the heart of Paul who deeply loves and cares for this church. And it was under concern for them being so young in their faith, facing such opposition that he spends a lot of time in this letter affirming and reassuring them. We'll see that again this morning. Now I remind you that Paul and his associates wrote this letter approximately six months to a year after establishing the church in Thessalonica. The letter was written, right here, this letter was written as a follow-up to Timothy's report of the church after returning from his visit with them. And Timothy's take on the church was that they were doing quite well. I mean, they weren't perfect, but their vital signs were good. Now, what's truly remarkable about that is that they're doing so well. Is it was amidst very intense persecution for their faith. But what is even more remarkable than that, that they were doing so well, was that these, they were only believers for less than a year. Listen, our spiritual transformation does not have to take decades. As we see by this church's example, even this morning, we can model genuine Christianity earlier than we think. We can have a faith worth talking about no matter where you might be this morning in your journey. All right, so we're going to look at uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, and we're going to check our vital signs. And what we see from these verses this morning of this church is that they were chosen, they were changed, and their faith was contagious. They were chosen, they were changed, and their faith was contagious. All right, first of all, they were chosen. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. For we know, he says, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Chosen. <laughs> All right, get a group of Bible students together, someone bring up chosen or election, and there will be a lively discussion, guarantee it. Perhaps even an argument on this one word. And most of us in this room would rather avoid this matter of chosen and an election altogether. It makes us a little uneasy and rather quite unsettled. But that's the opposite effect Paul hopes to have on his readers. I want you to notice that verse 4 in the use of this word chosen is in the context of thanksgiving to God for this church. He doesn't speak this way of them being chosen so they could debate the meaning of chosen, which we have, so many of us have done. No, the statement of their being chosen is meant to affirm them, not get them all worked up. It's a word of assurance that they belong to God. And Paul is confident that based on God's love for them and God's initiative in calling them to himself, that their salvation is genuine. And they needed to hear these words 
of assurance. Why? Because this young church was getting slammed for their faith. They were facing ridicule and opposition and persecution and hostility. The church was ostracized. There was a mob activity against them. There even might have been some legal proceedings. There's certainly uh, many who probably died for their faith. Might this church then, made up of, of young believers, wonder why life had become so hard since, because, since coming to faith? Might they question if they're doing something wrong? No, they needed assurance that they were loved by God. You need to hear that this morning. You are loved by God. You're getting beat up in the world. You are loved by God. If you know Jesus, you are chosen. You're chosen. Now, the, he's addressing here the entire church. It's the whole body of believers he speaks of as being chosen, the elect, not individual believers. I mean, it's obviously made up of that, but it's the whole church he's speaking to here. They needed to be reminded that God called them to himself. That what they're going through is all part of God's purposes for them. See, the truth of election and chosen isn't meant to stir up controversy. The humble embrace, get this, the humble embrace of the truth of election provides assurance and comfort. Now, why can Paul say, we know? Why can Paul here say with such certainty that he knows they're loved by God and chosen by God? Well, the very next word in verse 5 in the NIV is because. Because. Why does he know they're loved by God, chosen by God? Because. Verse 5. Here's the reason for his confidence. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You see, the Thessalonica church had to receive the truth. They had a, they had a part in this. And any teaching that emphasizes God's part in our salvation at the exclusion of our part is destined to go sideways. How do we know we're chosen by God? What evidence is there? Because, he says, because when the gospel came to you, when the gospel came to you, we received it not as something that some humans made up and put together, but we welcomed it into our lives as this being something from God. And we'll see in a few weeks in chapter 2, verse 13. And I'm trying not to give it all away here because verse 13 really is very similar to verse 5 here. But, but chapter 2, verse 13, it's on your screen. It says, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. You received it. You welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Same thought as here, as here in verse 5. A gospel came to you, Paul says, not simply with words. Now, he used words. We saw when we looked at Acts 17 that Paul used words to reason with them. He used words to connect the dots of the predicted Messiah of the Old Testament to this Jesus who showed up on planet earth, died, and was resurrected to pay the penalty for our sins. 
And Paul was able to clearly explain the gospel by the words he used. The content of what he said was not incidental. But listen, it wasn't only that. The verse says, it came also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. It isn't unlike the preaching that comes to you each week. Both Dan and I are committed to preparing well and to putting the material together in such a way that is understandable and relevant. Yes, we're going to deliver it as best as we can, but that doesn't go far enough. There is a spiritual component to it or else you might as well stay home on Sunday morning. Seriously. Why bother to get up? If it's just going to be me speaking, why come and just hear, hear listen to, to someone talk? Why? Yes, God's chosen humans, mere mortals, to speak his word. But the power does not lie in my words. For it to have impact in your life, it must be seen for more than that. Is that how you see it? Now, most of you have flown at least once in your lifetime, perhaps some of you over and over again. So you can recall that moment on the plane when the flight attendants go over the instructions of what to do in case of an emergency. The flight attendant draws your attention to the emergency exits, demonstrates how to activate and use the oxygen mass, and how to detach your seats to use for flotation devices, as if really, really believe any of that's going to help. But what do you notice, though, about the passengers as these instructions are given? I mean, as you look around, who's listening? Do people really care? Not really. Why not? No felt need. Give those same instructions when there's serious turbulence going on, (laughs) or when the plane is losing altitude, and you will have everyone's attention. It would be seen as life-saving words. There's then a felt need. So it is with receiving truth, the gospel, God's word. Is there a felt need? Do you see these words here as as life-giving, as necessary for your soul, for your growth, for you to make it in the world? Are you anticipating that these words spoken to you on a Sunday morning will come with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction? Or fullness, really, is the word there for deep conviction. This idea of doing its work fully in our lives. Is that what you expect when you come here? That's what it's going to do this morning. A little boy was sitting beside his mom and dad at church. little boy whispers to his dad, Dad, I don't get it. Mom wants to be home cooking dinner. You want to be out playing golf. And I want to be riding my four-wheeler. Why are we here? Why are we here? It's a good question. Why are we here? Are you here because you, you, you want to experience God's word and you want God's word to do its work in your life as you hear it, as you receive it into your life? Are you experiencing God's word and its life-changing power? Are we? We. Do you believe 
that what is written here, like all of Scripture, is the very words of God and exactly what God wanted us to have. For the preaching of God's Word, for the Word itself to have any effect on you, on me, it must be welcomed as not only words from some human source, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. This church in Thessalonica had signs of life because when the gospel came to them, it was accompanied by experienced reality. Which really leads to my second point this morning. They, they were changed people. They were changed people. They were chosen. Evidence of that, they were changed people. They were changed people. Lucy asked Linus, do you think anybody ever really changes? Linus answers, I've changed. I've changed a lot in the last year. And Lucy, in typical form, replies, no, 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 I mean for the better. <laughs> Are you different today than you were a year ago? No, I mean for the better. And just like physically, we are to develop and grow. Spiritually, we are to grow. We should not stay the same year after year. This church, six months to a year. Serious transformations going on in their lives. We go, oh, I mean, we've got a whole lifetime to do this. One way, yes. Another way, no. See, what kind of living validates the gospel. Well, evidence of a genuine conversion is change. Spiritual transformation. All right, and that's what happened here. What were the reasons for their change? Twofold, twofold. Two, two reasons why they had such a change in their lives. One reason for their change is that they had uh, good examples to follow. They had good examples to follow. Look at the end of verse 5. Boldly, Paul and his companions say, you, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see it? They, they, they saw the lives of those who spoke the message. And they were changed by that because they had examples to follow. Now at this point, we need to understand this of the background here. At this point, the church... Thessalonica did not have a New Testament to read. They didn't have principles and, and guidelines written down for them and how they're to conduct themselves as a church and how they're to conduct themselves as, 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 as followers. No, they had to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. All they had. And that's why Paul, we're going to see it more in next week's section, but that's why Paul goes to great lengths to protect his uh, credibility among them. Paul's going to argue that he wasn't like many of the swindlers in the day that used words to manipulate others for selfish gain. No, no, he says, he's, I'm going to take some time here to defend my reputation. Why? Because he knows that this church's growth depended on being a good example before them. It's been said, a good example is the best sermon. The power of our words depends on the kind of people we are. And where there's a disconnect between our message and our conduct, we make it that much harder for people to believe in Jesus. When, when, when the Christian church sends this mixed message, 
you not only hurt your testimony, you also damage the reputation of the church. You thought of it that way? And tragically, tragically, one of the biggest hurdles we have to overcome in our witness, we're sharing our life with someone else about who Jesus is. When we say, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. One of the biggest hurdles we have to overcome in our witness is the inauthenticity that has marked the church. Ah, a bunch of fakes. Yeah, they might be that way in the church, but outside the church, let me tell you something. We've heard it. So Sunday morning as the pastor and his family of six were getting ready for church, and so the pastor was trying to get out the door, and it was more hectic than usual. Breakfast didn't turn out right. Several arguments were going on among the children. Not that any of you have ever experienced that, but I'm sure you can understand it. Probably someone else has. Well, the pastor, trying to get out of the way, I mean, he's, he's frazzled. He's trying to regain his composure. In the midst of all the commotion, his wife enters the kitchen, notices the uproar, and she yells over all the commotion, all the ch- children, and she says, kids, settle down. Your dad has only 30 minutes until he has to become a radiant Christian. <laughs> right? I go, I, I got to get it on here because I'm going through these doors. What are they going to see? Now, I get it. That there's a, you know, certain face we have to have. We can't share everything with everyone all the time. I get that. But being a good example isn't about pretending we have it all together and acting a certain part. It's about being real. That's what Paul does in this letter. Throughout, we're going to see this. Now, when we say that, about being a good example, we're not talking about perfection or we're all disqualified. But integrity. And the joy of the Lord, which they welcome the message given by the, and joy by the, by the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in a moment. That isn't something we just go, oh, i got to turn it on now. Oh, i got to turn it on. Turn it on. Some of my people are on. Turn it. No, no. It comes from within, from the Holy Spirit, joy that's there. That's the radiance. We try and do this other thing. It doesn't work. And it's fake. And people know it. They sniff that out. There was a study in which psychologists discovered the top three places where people tend to fake it. One place is when people visit the lobby of a fancy hotel. They tend to put on airs. The second place where people typically fake it is alongside the salesperson at a new car showroom. Kind of fake it. They know what they're talking about. The third place we tend to fake it is, you guessed it, in the church. And so often we're hiding behind pretenses and masks and that just only becomes an excuse for others coming to faith. And they say, if that's it, I don't want any. Oh, I got to fake it in here though. Paul and his team were good examples to be followed. And it mattered because it was through them that the church first saw the reality of the gospel and they were changed. The second reason for their change is what we've already touched on. They welcomed the message. They welcomed the message. Verse 6. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. In spite of severe suffering, 
And you might be here today and you're going, you know, with all that's going on in my life right now, I can't hear anything from the Lord. When that settles down and life gets better, then I'll hear from the Lord. No, no. In spite of severe suffering, they welcome the message. It's while they were undergoing suffering, they welcomed the message. They allowed it into their lives. And beginning in verse 9 speaks of this as well when it says, for they themselves, they themselves, meaning, meaning all the churches in the surrounding areas, they themselves report what kind of reception, welcome that you gave us. And that's not about hospitality as much as it is about the Thessalonian church receiving Paul and his associates openly by welcoming their teaching into their lives. That's what he's saying there. They welcomed it into their lives. It begs the question, are you welcoming the Word of God? Are you kind of resisting it? I mean, even, this is the hard part, even when it exposes something in our life that we don't, we don't really want to look at, do we welcome that? Is it changing you? When the gospel and the Word of God comes to us, and if it doesn't change us, what's the point? They were changed people. And what was evidence of that change? Middle of verse 9 now tells that the word on the street about the Thessalonica church, notice what, the, what they're saying. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, this is no small thing. Idols were um, a part of life in uh, Thessalonica. I mean, they were entrenched in it. They, the idols were everywhere, even from um, Thessalonica, the city. They could, they could see Mount Olympus, which was about 50 miles south of the city. And that Mount Olympus was a place where the Greek gods were supposed to live. I mean, it was all around them. They were entrenched in it. And centuries, they lived in superstitious dread of them and had bowed down to them in fearful worship. See, we need to understand that these idols had a tremendous hold over people's lives, over people's minds, over their hearts. And today, much more sophisticated idols that we have, God substitutes, they can equally have an incredible hold on us, if we're honest. And this church had abandoned all their past loyalties, all of their props that they were leaning on to turn to God. It's amazing. One commentator says this, says, it would be difficult to exaggerate how radical is the change of allegiance which is implied by the turn from idols to the living God. Goes on, for idols are dead, God is living. Idols are false, God is true. Idols are many, God is one. Idols are visible and tangible, God is invisible and intangible, beyond the reach of sight and touch. Idols are creatures, the work of human hands. God is the creator of the universe and of all mankind. And what was going on in this church when they came to Jesus is they didn't just add Jesus to their God shelf. They didn't add Jesus to all the other religious beliefs that they had and say, well, there'll be one more. No, they had to abandon all those idols, had to abandon all the immoral practices associated with them to serve the living and true God. And what should be a sure sign of our genuine salvation is a change in our allegiances. 
God will not share his allegiance with anything or anyone else. He has no rival, we sang earlier. He will not share it. They had a faith worth talking about because of the radical change that took place. They were chosen. They were changed. I want us to see their faith was contagious. They were contagious here. And Webster's, uh, Webster defines contagious as an influence that spreads uh, rapidly. This church's influence was spreading. That's what we're going to see here. Verse 7. It says, And so, you became a model. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the word for model, uh, by the way, it literally means leaving a mark. Leaving a mark. If I just kind of flipped out this morning, I took a hammer, and I started banging on this here, it's going to leave a mark. Okay? What kind of mark are we leaving? Paul's following Christ served as a model for this church, which in turn became a model for others to follow. Kind of like that stone that's thrown in the lake, right? There was this incredible ripple effect that goes on with our faith. Is our faith worth talking about? Are we, are we doing our part to pass it on, to leave that mark, to give it to the next generation? Is the next generation, are they taking it and receiving it? Ready to pass it on? There's a family who had a priceless heirloom, family heirloom, it was a vase. And it was passed down from one generation to the next generation. And one day, the parents of the family who had possession of the vase left the teenagers at home while they all went out shopping for the day. Well, when they returned home, their children met the parents at the door with sad faces reporting. Mom, Dad, you know that priceless priceless heirloom our family passes down one generation to the next? Well, our generation just dropped it. (laughs) Our generation just dropped it. And you know, we cannot afford to have a generation that drops it. We cannot afford to drop passing it on. We need to leave a mark. Our spiritual values, we don't want them to be dropped after our children leave the home. Are you living in such a way that you would want others to imitate you? Is your faith worth talking about? Notice verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Now, the word, uh, phrase there, rang out, really, the, it's where we get our word echo. Echo, like thunder, right? You hear it in the distance, it keeps going. Or in a canyon, yeah, echo, 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 right? That's what that word means, rang out. The faith of these believers in Thessalonica was spreading. It was Echoing faster than Paul could even travel. <laughs> Seems that everywhere that Paul and his team went, news of their faith had preceded him. So Paul didn't have to say anything about it and about them. He'd say, yeah, you know that church? Yeah, we already know. No, but this church in Thessalonica, you, let me tell you, we already know. <laughs> what do you mean you already know? Spreading like wildfire. This was good gossip, right? Good gossip. This is what we want to spread to others about us at Living Hope. Good gossip. It isn't always the case though, is it? Usually the news 
that spreads like wildfire is the trouble some particular church is having. Did you hear about the church? Oh, they're really falling out. There's a big problem over there. Spreads. Good gossip. Our faith spread. You know what's really going on? They're a church that's alive. Things are happening. Change. I'm seeing it. Let that ring, ring out. Echo. Now why can, what kind of explains such an impact in their region? Why is the transformation so convincing, so contagious? Well, I'm not going to spend time on this really, but I do want to point it out. They had a sustained expectancy. They were mocked by future tense living. I said last week, every, at the end of every chapter in Thessalonians, there's a talk about Christ's return. Here it is again, verse 10. They were waiting for a son to, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. Because he paid the price for our sins. He rescues us from the coming wrath. And they were waiting in anticipation for Jesus to return from heaven. And it was influencing how they were living their days. Are we living with a sense of waiting in anticipation today for Jesus to return from heaven? It does affect how we live today. I I said the quote last week from C.S. Lewis, it bears repeating. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did uh, most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. That me? Is that you? See, our hope for our future makes a difference in how we live in the present. Is that what the, is that what the, the, the surrounding area is seeing? Because we have that expect, expectancy. Are we living out our faith, following biblical principles that others realize that living hope Lakeport is a place worth their coming? That we really live what we believe here. Is there any hope, we ask, for the United States? Of course there is. Can we really impact the Lakes region? Absolutely. The God who works so powerfully in the church in Thessalonica is the same God who can work today through the church. We need to be contagious. And you show me a church that's contagious, and I'll show you a church that's alive. And I think we're there. I think that's happening in our lives. We just need to keep at it. Let's not let our guard down. Let's not coast to the finish line. We must regularly check our vital signs. How are we doing? And what makes a church contagious? Programs? It's the people. It's you. It's me. It's our changed lives. Has the gospel changed you? Does it continue to change you? The greatest impact, greatest impact is when we all leave here this morning. Don't just go through the next six days until we meet again for another shot in the arm. Are we leaving a mark? We have an example. We are an example. The question is, what kind of example are we? Because others are watching. Leslie Strobel became a Christian in 1979, and she modeled her faith before her husband, 
her atheistic husband. And it influenced him, Lee, to begin his own search for God. And so she's just modeling it before him. And he goes, ah, something's going on with my wife here. I need to look into this Jesus thing. And in his book, Case with Christ, that many of you know about, he tells of his two years of intensive research that finally led him to receive Jesus as his Savior. By her example, he had to find out what's up. And he came to Christ. And more ripple, with a law degree from Yale, an award-winning career in journalism at the Chicago Tribune, Lee had the ability to answer tough questions raised by unbelievers and cynics. The change in his life, I mean, it was just so radical. His faith was worth talking about. His change was so radical that it influenced their five-year-old daughter, Allison, who one day came to, to mom and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. Wow. Leslie's faith created a ripple effect that changed the whole family and many other people down the ages. Are we living in such a way that we would want others to imitate us? Do we have a faith worth talking about? Let's pray. God, help us process all of this to be encouraged and built up, not beat up. But built up to say, yeah, this is what I want. How can I be a better example? How can I live my life in a way that I want others to imitate me? May we ask some of the hard questions this morning. Because we know no matter where we've come from, what we've been where we got messed up, where things in our life just looked horrible. You have the power to redeem all that, to use that for your purposes. And we thank you for that. Show us what that looks like in our lives as you use us to spread our faith to others, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.